Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masacha Shabbat, Mem Bet, 42. Now, what we have on this daf, it goes in a few different directions, but one of the things that's important here is a discussion that touches on something that, as far as I know, is both the essence of Hilchot Shabbat, Masacha Shabbat, um, and the keeping of Shabbat, and also is not articulated in a nice, neat package anywhere in Shas, as far as I know. Namely, there's a criterion for which uh, to, to do a malacha, right? If you're going to break Shabbos, you're going to do the malacha. It needs to be what's called malacha machshevet. There needs to be, uh, uh, there's something like five different component parts that make the malacha, like uh, 100% the malacha that it is, whether you want to define this as a considered malacha, it's not quite right to say it's a planned malacha, but intent is very key here. And one of the elements, and we'll come to all five of them, um, one of the elements here is literally intent. So that you have to have intent to do the action that you're doing, that you know, that constitutes the malacha, and you have to have intent to break Shabbat. If you don't have intent to break Shabbat, we call it Bishoge, right? You have done the action at Bishoge and you are not fully culpable for the activity of the, you know, the action that breaks Shabbos. Um, but if you do it with intent, meaning intent to do this particular activity and you do it with intent to break Shabbat, that's what we call Bemezi. But there's other component parts also here because for example, and some of you may know this just as a way that if you're ever in the need to do the thing that is otherwise a malacha and you have to kind of get yourself out of it, we talk about, oh, do it with a shinui. What's a shinui from the language of shoneh? To do it differently, to do the same activity that would otherwise be a malacha, do it in a way that is just off, you know, off a bit, that it's not the real way that you would do this. And therefore you end up with not quite doing it the way it's intended to be done, uh, in Gemara terms, or halachic terms, that's called kilacharyad, meaning that you're doing something not the regular way of doing it. Uh, so that's one thing. And then here we end up touching on both intent, right? I mean, that you're doing the malacha in the way that it is fully intended. And part of what that means is that the malacha itself is done where you need the result of your malacha. We touched on this on a different in a different episode, was called Malacha Shetricha Lagufa. Tricha Lagufa, or Do you need the outcome that is the physical byproduct of your activity of Malacha? And this is a machloket of, between Rabbi Shimon and pretty much everybody else. And that's what we have here. A discussion about Shmuel and Shimon, meaning, and Rabbi Shimon, but whether they agree on specifically this point about intent and whether you need the physical outcome of your malacha. So the, the, our daf begins, are you saying, and the Gemara is like jumping right into a conversation that's already going on, a discussion that's already going on. Are you saying that Shmuel holds like Rabbi Shimon, meaning because the presumption is that nobody else holds like Rabbi Shimon, we have to still find out what his opinion is. Ba'amar Shmuel, we're talking about a case where let's say you have something that is white hot metal and is in the public domain and you are 
you put it out, right? Meaning you you do something to change this white hot metal so that it does, so that nobody gets hurt from it, right? Because, and then the the, the implication is, but you're not dealing with a real fire. You're dealing with a metal, and the metal being very hot, you want to make sure that nobody gets injured. But extinguishing it is not quite the same as extinguishing actual flames. But if it was a wood coal, right? If it was a gachelet shall if this is wood and then you extinguish it, that is the thing that is really prohibited in the in the verses about extinguishing at the Torah level. Okay, so let's take a step back. There is a pro there is a mitzvah, a prohibition against putting out a flame. And the question here is does putting out does cooling off uh a gachelet shall some kind of white hot coal cooling that off does that count as extinguishing the flame or does does it have to be regular coal or in fact you know a regular flame so if you think that when Samuel says that you're allowed to extinguish the the metal the metal but not the wood maybe you think that he holds like Rabbi Shimon Rabbi Shimon whose opinion that we again that we touched on before is that you need to need the outcome, the physical outcome of your malacha for it to count sufficiently. Um, and the issue is that when you put out the coal, when you re- reduce the temperature of it so that it won't be a danger to people, you're not doing anything that requires, <clears throat> excuse me, that requires the coal itself, that requires the outcome of that malacha. So the Gemara continues here, and maybe this will also help shed light. But for something that you do that is utterly not intended, so, <coughs> Rabbi Huda and Rabbi Shimon are, as we've discussed in the past, you know, a pair of our plukta who disagree on repeated things. And in this case, Rabbi Shimon is the one, again, who says, is specifically a Rabbi Shimon topic. But he's in the minority, and Rabbi, Rabbi Huda's position that you do, let's see, let's make sure we get the double negative here right. Malacha she'ena needs to be, um, you need to need, wait, you're going to help me here with the, with the double negative. Malacha she'ena means that you don't need the physical outcome. You dig the hole, and you need the hole, you don't. You just, Sorry, finish what are you? Yeah, I that's what that it's that you don't need what the outcome is. Okay, and Rabbi, Rabbi Shimon says that even if you don't need the outcome, it is still prohibited. And everybody else says, no, you have to also need the outcome. You have to need for it to be a con, con, for it to constitute a complete malachat machshevet, right? Meaning for malachat is part of what it makes what means to do. The, the action in full. Here concludes that Shmuel aligns with Rabbi Shimon for, specifically for the question of meaning, can you do your activity, the prohibited malacha, without intent? And would you be, would you be obligated there? Or what about malacha Again, these are two separate categories. And <coughs> um, we need to just specify there's again these it's about five different contingent parts for which a full intent or a full rounded malacha uh, it, where each of these component parts is necessary for the malacha to count. So the virus genomic is one, meaning that you do it in the way 
that it would be intended to do. That you need the outcome. I mentioned another one, that you do it not with a shinui, that you do it in the regular way that it is to do it. Um, and we'll continue as we come across the rest of the five or six. There's some look at there. Um, and we'll describe them. Yardina, do you want to fill these in now? or? As we come to them, and then at some point we're going to have to I think we should do it as we come to them. Okay. Yeah. So if anybody is, you know, just on tenterhooks waiting to find out what the rest of the categorization that is necessary for Malachim Achshevet, let us know and we will, you know, we talked about maybe we'll do an overview. This might be one that's that's need that needs the overview. But um, the idea of Davar Shenom at Kavain here is important. What does it mean to do a malacha without intent to do it? And there seems to be a distinction here, right, between something that is an action that is utterly unintended. You know, I like to give the example of you, you wake up in the middle of the night, you go to the bathroom, you flick the light switch, right, without even realizing it. And then you've turned it off, right, or, or, or on, as the case may be. And, and there's no intent there whatsoever. And you have barely realized, you've barely registered that you have done an action. Now, a light switch is perhaps not the best example of, <coughs> excuse me, of malacha, um, you know, because it's not quite the same thing as our example of extinguishing a flame or, you know, reducing the temperature of white hot metal, which is closer to the actual described act in the, in the Torah. But this idea of to what extent are you involved with the physical action that you're doing you know, if you're there because you're trying to reduce the temperature because it's a danger in public, there's no question that you have intent with regard to the activity that you're doing. You may not have intent to break Shabbos. Right. So uh, we we have seen the Zavar Shein or Mitzkaben before. It has appeared in previous Dapim. Um, it actually appeared um, with the discussion of Abaye. We talked about it when he talked about where were the three cases where Rabbah didn't agree with Rav, and this was one of the cases that gets referred to. The classic Zavar Sheno Mitzkaven uh, illustration of Rabbi Shimon is, is the case of dragging a chair right over the ground and you make these furrows. So that would be one of the malachas, right, of digging or, or creating like a trench, but because that's totally not what you intended to do. You were just trying to move the chair from one place to another, like in your own personal property. And you just happen to make this furrow by dragging the chair. Rabbi Shimon's going to say it's a davar shein mitkaven, and it's it's it. You didn't do anything. It's completely fine. And again, Rabbi Yehuda would say no. It doesn't make a difference what the intention was. At the end of the day, you did complete a malacha. You did complete a prohibitive act. Yes, and there you will have that same example of you know I the example of you dig a hole. Right now, the outcome you have two outcomes. One is the hole, and one is the dirt. And what was your intent? What were you doing in digging the hole? Did you need the hole or did you need the dirt? And that's part of the question of like, you have to also need the, like the activity of the hole even more than the dirt, according to everybody else. But not according to, right? Rabbi Shimon says you also need the dirt. No? Am I getting this wrong? Yeah, no, I think you're correct on this. So this is a concept, the Malachat Machshavah, that we'll come back to. Um, and I think just the two phrases to really be aware of here are Malacha Sheina Tzricha Lagufa and Devar Sheino Mitzkaven. And Malacha Machshavah itself. Right. And Malacha Machshavah itself. So three phrases here. And that this is sort of a classic, very famous 
machlokas between Rabbi Shimon, and it's usually between Rabbi Huda, but it's really Rabbi Shimon and everybody else, uh, that sort of will reappear time and time again. In classic Gemara fashion, it's, you know, and because we've seen it in many pages before, it's such an underlying principle, Malachat Machshavet, and Rabbi Shimon's opinion, and Rabbi Huda's opinion, you would think it sort of would have been devoted to sort of almost its own parak or its own, uh, you know, introduction. But no, it's just sort of sprinkled in in the pages in a way that sort of assumes that the reader knew this machlokas already. And it probably was that it was so famous. Everybody probably was aware of it. But for uh, for, our, for our the, readers so today, that becomes our learners today, that obviously becomes a little bit more complicated. And to the best of my knowledge, and, you know, I say this gingerly because my knowledge is limited. Shas is big, but I'm not sure that the phrase Malachat Machshevet is ever used in a Gemara discussion of these categories, the component parts of which are required in order to have a full Malacha, you know, for one to be liable. Uh, I am going to agree so. with you on that. And that's something that we're going to pay attention to. I believe that never appears in the Gemara as well but it's more these other categories which we'll continue to get to and we'll point them out that fall under the rubric of Malachat Machshavet. And then we have two, we've been introduced to two, of the Malachat Shena Tzrichalagufa and the Devar Shena Mitzkaben. Um, so we'll table that discussion and we'll get back to it time and time again because you will see even in the next few pages, it's going to come up uh, very often. So now the daf is going to get into a Mishnah that I want to read that's at the bottom of Amud to Amud Bet. And again, I think it's where we see where with all the, all the prohibitive actions, there's layers upon layers. And here, uh, there's going to be a different scenario, which is uh, the issue of cooking spices. And the Gemara comes up with a very, very interesting Kiddush, a very interesting innovation here. And it reads as follows. Ha'il pas so here we're talking about a stew pot or a pot that was removed from the fire while they're still boiling. So the, the vessel itself, the clay itself, is no longer actually in contact with the heat source. However, even if it's not in contact with the heat source, one is not allowed to put spices in that pot. And again, what's innovative here is before the whole discussion around bichol, around cooking, had to do with being in contact with an actual heat source, right? Now, that could have even been the sun. Could the sun be a heat source? Could it be, you know, the case we had of roasting an egg that was leaning against the metal that was directly in contact with the heat source? But here, what it's saying is, is that even if you remove the pot from the heat source, spices themselves could be cooked. Um, and that's very interesting and very different than what we've seen before. And what the concept is, the, the thing to know about here is, is that that pot that was removed from the heat source itself is what we call a clay reshone. It's the primary clay because it's the one that was directly in contact with the fire. Mishnah continues and says, But if the contents of that pot, of the original pot that was originally on the fire, is poured into another uh, into another pot or into a terrine, right? Like basically your serving dish, let's say, okay? Then what? Then you would be allowed to basically put spices into that. Once it's put into what we classically in halacha call klisheni, the secondary vessel, it's the vessel that's not, that doesn't come in contact with the fire source itself, with the heating source itself, but instead just contains the hot food. 
then you could put spices in there because it's already removed enough from the original source that we would say that the spices would not actually get cooked. The Mishnah concludes by saying, Rabbi Yehuda Omer Lechol, that actually you could put spices, Rabbi Yehuda says, in anything. It doesn't make a difference, Kli Rishon, Kli Shani, how close in contact it was to the fire source. What you cannot put spices in is vinegar and brine of salted fish. Now that's interesting because that doesn't seem to actually have anything to do with cooking, right? It has to do with sort of that the vinegar or the brine could actually change something about the spices and maybe that's the way that it's cooked. Um, so I just wanted to point this mission out. I thought it was worth to read because again, it adds another layer of, uh, cooking, right? That there can be cooking, even not directly on a heat source, which was introduced to us with the roasting of the egg, but here it's a little bit different. And a mission again, that I think is important because it, uh, really shows the establishment of the concepts without using the words, but which we discuss later on, or the halakhic sources, the Roshonim, when they really try to tease out what the halakha is of Kli Rishon and Kli Shani. So I think that also what there's two, I think there's two different topics here in your, in just in this Mishnah that, um, you know, become very large in the discussion of cooking on Shabbos. And so on the one hand, it's what you've described already, Kli Rishon and Kli Shani, which matters, right? In terms of, I don't know, the, the, how you handle things on Shabbat, right? Like, let's say you have your soup pot with your soup in it, and now you need to, you're going to put the soup in the bowl, and can you put, let's say, shkede marak, soup nuts, into your soup bowl? Now, at what removed do you put the soup nuts in before you put the soup in? If you do that, that's bishul, right? The, this discussion of rishon shani, can, can you do, does cooking happen in klisheni, Matters. It's a big, you know, machlokan amongst post game in general, halachic decisors. And one of the factors here, I would say, is one of the key elements here is, I, I'm sorry, is the distinction, I would say, between, we've, we've talked about this in the past, between scientific reality and halachic reality. Because if you took a temperature, you know, you took a thermometer and you, you measured the heat in Klirishon versus Klisheni, you may not actually have a significant diminishment of heat that you would say, oh, klisheni doesn't cook, or klishlishi for that matter doesn't cook. You keep transferring, you keep transferring. At what point are you losing enough heat that you can actually see a marked difference on your thermometer? It may take a while, but halachically, the distinction between rishon and sheni, or depending on your your psak, sheni and shlishi, is is halachically significant, and we say, you know, some people say klisheni eno mevashel. There is no cooking, halachic cooking that takes place in a klisheni, and some people think you need to wait until you get to a klishlishi. Fine, that's one point. The other point I want to say is about this about the herbs, um, and I think of this in the context of tea in particular. Except for again, tea was not really available in the Western world until, you know, significantly later. There's something. There's a category here being addressed without its label, which is called kale bishul, things that cook very quickly, very rapidly, that it just takes that little bit of heat and you're, you're in the zone of cooking. And that's why I say, think of tea leaves where, you know, tea leaves are, are dry, right? But they're not, um, they're not previously cooked before it comes in contact with your hot water. And it takes nothing for that tea leaf to, to cook, right? To, to immediately begin to give off its, um, what do you want to call it? The essence of the tea, right? So Kali Bishul is here in the herbs 
as a as its own category as opposed to let's say you know you're cooking a hunk of meat or you're cooking for that matter potatoes it would take a lot longer than just immediate contact with with the heat okay so as long as we've got those out there as concepts a lot, a lot you know, of concepts I think on we're this good. page <laughs> so i know seriously we were like introduced to three important concepts with Hulk Shabbos on this small page so you know that's and then at the bottom which we won't even get into. Correct. We're going to get and into if you and at the bottom of the doc, yeah, go ahead. Discussion on Muxa. Yes, the fourth, which is our number four, with the statement of Rafi. Muxa, great. We'll begin our discussion of Muxa, which is what we will start discussing over the next few pages. So uh, to be continued, coming attractions, which is yeah. which requires yeah. its own exactly. It requires its own definitions. There's our doc discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us wherever you get our podcast. Uh, you can join our WhatsApp group. Thank you to Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hagman website. We're a little bit behind. I'm a little bit behind. I'm putting up our links on on that site, but we'll be getting there and you should be able to see them uh, in the next day or so. And I think that's it. Until tomorrow.